Today we're starting a new series, and the series is called If You Want to Go Up, You Got to Go Down. And that will hopefully become clear as we, uh, as we talk throughout this message. Up is a good word in our culture. Um, you know, people who watch the polls and the stock markets, they want it to go up. Uh, people who people want their salaries to go up. People who are in a good mood are up. You know, we call people who have too much money and too much silverware at their table upper class. Students like their GPA to go up. Generally speaking, people want their lives to go up and to the right. That's, that's the good thing. Now, if up is good, down is bad. Uh, we talk about people being down and out, uh, downscaling our lives, uh, downhill, downhearted. Uh, goose down is good for us, but it's bad for the goose. Um, when people are sick, we say that they're down with the flu or down with a cold or down with something. Uh, if you do a put down on somebody, it's considered an insult. When people die, you know, they say they want to go up, they don't want to go down. The only time down is good is when prices go down or interest rates go down. We have a name for people who are vying for attention and biting and scratching and clawing their way up the ladder of success. We call them upwardly mobile. And in our culture, to be upwardly mobile is considered a good thing. But nobody ever says, you know, well, yeah, I'd like to be downwardly mobile. Like I would like to start here and I'd like to go down. Not usually. And yet, those are the words that Paul uses to describe Jesus down. He descended into greatness. He descended from the glory and the power of heaven down to the shed in Bethlehem as the Son of God. And it was his path to greatness. And that's how he lived right to the end. That's what you find Jesus doing is you find him going down and descending and descending and descending to the point where he ends up on a cross. Now, the passage I want to talk about this morning uh, actually talks about that. I want to talk to you about what I think is probably the most important and amazing passage in the Bible because it describes what Jesus did for us. And it talks about humility. Most people who are great, truly great, understand this whole principle of humility that God works in our lives in two ways. You know, there are two paths. One is to humble yourself. The other is to be humbled by somebody. Now, from a place of power that we can't even possibly imagine, you know, Jesus descended. First a birth in a stable, and then to public failure on a cross. And then it was the greatest plunge that anybody has ever taken. And he did this to conquer something that we sometimes celebrate. Something that we sometimes pamper in ourselves, and that's self. Self-interest and the whole ugly trinity of selfishness and self-centeredness and, and self-preoccupation and self-indulgence. So here's the question. What will you and I do with the pride in us that threatens what God wants to do in our lives and the greatness that he wants to bring to our hearts and to become the people that we want to be? because he created us to be that. What are you going to do with the pride that threatens all those things? See, because our world and our instincts say basically claw your way to the top, you know, step into the, into the spotlight, you know, grab what other people have. Jesus said the way to greatness is down. You have to humble yourself. And I want to read the passage that talks about that. Um, this is found in the book of Philippians chapter 2. And again, it's one of the most profound passages in the Bible. 
He starts here. Paul says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, question, does that describe anything that's going on in our culture? Not from what I see. I mean, you do a little roaming around on Facebook or Instagram or in the corporate offices downtown. Don't worry. They'll be, you'll be wearing a mask so they can't, they can't rescue, <laughs> they can't recognize you. But what I see is people who are obsessed with going up, people who are obsessed with doing all these things for themselves and all the things that, you know, this talks about and talks against. You know, selfism has become kind of a, a, an art form in our world. When f- selfie sticks first came, you know, I thought they were hilarious because I'm thinking, what a joke, you know. <laughs> I got one because I wanted to have an example of one. I thought it was, a, I thought it was just, you know, kind of a fad that was going to go through. Now I realize that selfies are here to stay. And if you look at a lot of people's phones, that's pretty much what they have is pictures of themselves on their phones. Now, How do these words sound in a selfie world where it says you've got to stop being fixated on yourself if you want to be great? This passage describes this self-preoccupation as the enemy of greatness and the enemy of everything that you and I want for our lives. First, it talks about selfish ambition. In our culture, you could call it kind of the pecking order. Now, I saw this firsthand. A friend of mine in Pennsylvania had a a turkey. He had hatched these turkeys. There's probably a dozen of them in this pen. And it was ugly. I saw one turkey, and they were, I could call them turklets because they were kind of, you know, middle school at that point. But one of them was bleeding and had a whole bunch of its feathers, its tail feathers in particular, missing. And I said, what happened to him? What's going on here? And he said, look at its foot because it had a club foot. And he says, the other turkeys in the pen will keep pecking at that, and they will eventually kill it. It's called the pecking order. And it's true. Uh, you know, you throw a, a handful of grain into any you know, uh, chicken pen and stuff like this. And the chicken, by the time the feed is gone, the chickens will have decided who's number one chicken and who's number 12 chicken, you know, because number one chicken will peck at number two chicken, number two chicken will peck at number three chicken, and it will keep on going until it's called the pecking order for a reason. And the pecking order lives on. I mean, you go into any, <laughs> most room, business rooms and guys are sitting there or women who are sitting there will talk about, you know, their company and, and how much their company's worth and how many people they have under them and how much they make and all this stuff. It's called the pecking order, you know? 
And we instinctively know what to look for. We look for titles, you know, if somebody's, you know, CEO or CFO or president or something. We look at whether or not a person is a university grad or a graduate school person or high school dropout. And if they don't have some kind of a label on their lives, we look at the kind of jewelry that they wear, you know, and whether or not it's real gold. We look at the brand of clothing, you know, the brand of purse that they carry and the cars and makeup and all this stuff. It's all pecking order. And it's based on how much I have, how important I am, how much I can grab as I go by. And in our culture, this baggage then gets passed right on to our kids, you know. We basically teach our kids, you know, if, you, if somebody else is on the stage that you want to be on, you've got to knock them off the stage. And the Holy Spirit, through Paul, has a title for this stuff. And the title is, Get Ahead, Be First, Crush the Competition, Win at All Costs. It's called Selfish Ambition. You get what you want, even if it costs somebody else. And it's true, isn't it? How do we measure ourselves? I mean, do we measure ourselves, you know, based on any kind of <laughs> list of things that are out there? We base, our, we, we base our own greatness on other people in comparison to them. Am I greater than they are? And this whole, all this stuff contradicts everything that Jesus stood for. He hated it. And the next quality is similar. The passage here calls it vain conceit. And the literal word means empty glory. In other words, there's this little glory out there, but it doesn't have anything in it. It's about ego. It's about becoming kind of a little god in your own little kingdom. And if you're a parent, you probably have heard your kids say at some point, you know, they're at the beach or you're at the, you know, they're at the playground and they're over there going, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me, screaming at you because they want your attention. That's not a bad thing. Sometimes, you know, when we get into teenagerhood, you know, guys, you know, with their cars or whatever they're doing, they're yelling at the girls, look at me, look at me. Girls find other ways to say, look at me. But sometimes over time, if we don't grow out of this, this hardens into vain conceit. It's the need to have the biggest and the fastest and the best. It's the need, you know, that we have to be right. It's the need that we have to be the smartest person in the room. And we leave subtle or not so subtle clues about why people are lucky to be around us and why they ought to feel privileged to be our acquaintance or be in our presence. It's called vain conceit. And the problem is that usually everybody else can see it, but we can't. <laughs> We think it's cool. And just to be clear, the need for significance, you see, is not a bad desire, not at all. But it just gets bad when it's combined with a bad definition of greatness as meaning greater than other people. And I'll tell you, it's a setup for disappointment. Because nobody in their life ever says, you know, I've had enough attention, you know. I've been on the stage enough, you know, and, and I have enough stuff because it's this insatiable appetite for more no matter what it is. And the third characteristic of self-centered people is that they're pretty much about themselves and about their own interests. Now, you think about this, okay? When a person in our culture, you know, spends pretty much all their time and energy and, and money on themselves, what's it called? Well, in our world, it's called normal, right? It's just the way most people think. But Jesus said that if you live that way, if you live that way, you may lose your soul. So why do we do it? Well, it's because we think it will give us the life that we've always wanted. It will make us happy. So I just need to <clears throat> show you my next amazing picture here, okay? Humility, uh, greatness versus self means you have to choose between them. We've already talked a little bit about them. But what Paul has been talking about here is kind of this ev evil trinity of relational chaos. Selfish ambition 
vain conceit, self-interest, it leads to chaos. Remember how we defined happiness, you know, when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount? Happiness is being at peace with God, at peace with others, and at peace with yourself. And none of these things lead to that. It ultimately leads to unhappiness. It leads to chaos in our relational world, our relational world with God and with ourselves eventually. Now, does, does being the number one chicken in the coop, having people notice you and using all your time and your money and energy make you happy and fulfilled? I mean, is this actually a satisfying way to live? When you look at our world system, you find out that it's really not because it's never enough. And the truth is that death forces everyone to kind of abdicate the throne. I mean, it levels the playing field. <laughs> death makes the pecking order irrelevant and it drags us off the center stage. Wouldn't it be sad and tragic to have death drag you off the stage of life and realize that in the process of your living, you're supposed to become like Jesus, but you don't look hardly anything like him because he wasn't like that. Now, I don't want that, and I don't think you do either. So let me start with this. Jesus raised an issue that, that, keeps, us, that keeps coming up all the way through the early records. His last prayer, uh, he prayed, let them be one. Let them be in unity with one another. Let them be one heart and one mind and carry on the mission. And what you find is all the writers, including Paul, because that's what he's really dealing with here, is unity in the church. He's saying, you know, you will sacrifice the unity because of your own self, because of, you know, putting yourself first, because of your conceit and so on. So unity is what God wants because that's the way the mission of Jesus gets accomplished on this planet. And if it's going to happen, then as followers of Jesus, we need to set our egos aside. We have to you know, be willing to be wrong and not right all the time and not have our own way. Jesus prayed that we would be one. And I'll tell you, you know, when the church has done this, church has been amazing. Great things have happened in the world. People you know, give their lives to Jesus Christ. The church has credibility. But when it doesn't, when it doesn't live in unity, then all of a sudden, everything that we talk about Jesus gets sabotaged because we're nothing like him. And for that to happen, we have to, for us to be in unity, we have to set our differences aside. We have to agree to work together on the mission of Jesus. It doesn't mean that we become cookie-cutter Christians where everybody's alike and nobody thinks differently. No, we do think differently, but we choose to put self-interest to the side so that we can carry on the mission of Jesus. And that's when the mission of Jesus has credibility in the world. Jesus said, you know, let them be one so that the people will even believe that I came into this world to give my life for them. And so Paul says this at the beginning. He says, if you have any courage, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, does it mean anything to you that Jesus Christ gave his life for you? He says, if you have any comfort from his love, does it mean anything in your heart that God loves you, that he, he finds you desirable, that he knows your name and that he cares about you? He says, you know, if you have anything to say about the fellowship of the Spirit, what do you think about that? That the Spirit of God comes to live inside you and he confirms that you're a child of God and he gives you wisdom when you need it and he helps you to find the way when you can't find it. And he says, is your heart growing more tender and compassionate or is it growing less? Are you wanting to become a kind and generous person? Is that even on the radar? He says, if it is, then be like-minded. Work together in the mission. Because that's what Jesus, Jesus has poured his love and poured his grace and poured his hope into our lives. 
You know, and sometimes it's possible to just be a taker. You know, come on, come on, bring it on. I want more, I want more, I want more. And it's not supposed to be kind of in this dam in our hearts where it gets dammed up. It's supposed to pass on to other people. And the way this happens best is through unity. When we set ourselves aside, when we make the goal of our life not to be on some stage, not to have this, you know, empty conceit, but to live for God and to engage in his mission. Now, if you're sitting with someone right now, and many of you, you know, are maybe sitting in your living room watching this on TV or, or something like that, I want you to look at that person for just a minute, okay? So you just look at them for just a minute. What do you think? Do you like them? Do you not like them? Are you just grumpy because you just woke up? Now, I want to ask you a question. Are there any limits to how much God loves that person that you're looking at right now? This passage says, so be like him. You value them too. Not just the person who's sitting in the living room with you, but the person that you encounter, you know, when you're on the train downtown, the person that you encounter in traffic. And I'll tell you what, if we would just value people like that, um, that, would, that would settle pretty much every bit of disunity and hostility that we experience. And that would cause the church to work together in unity. We are called to love other people as much as we love ourselves. That's what this is talking about. We don't have to agree on anything, but we're one in spirit and purpose. See, the root of all division among the followers of Jesus is self-interest. You know, basically, I care more about me, I care more about my opinions, I care more about, you know, all this stuff going on than I care about you, and for that matter, about Jesus, because Jesus called me to live in unity, and I'm not going to do it because I think I'm better than you are. That's why Paul can say with authority, you know, say, if you want to follow and be forgiven and be changed by Jesus who humbled himself, then you need to have the same humility and deal with your own junk. We not only have to deal with our own junk, we have to consciously take positive steps. Notice what the first one is. It's, it's humility. It's considering other people better than you. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow. If I was writing the Bible, I wouldn't put it in there, but it's in there. But I want you to think about how much conflict would instantly devolve, uh, dissolve if we had the humility and the courage to say and mean it. You know, I think your idea is better than mine. I think your cause is better than mine. I'm not going to take shots at you because I don't like having people take shots at me. Now, <laughs> we look at this and a lot of us will say, but, 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 but Paul, you know, you don't know. You, you, you haven't heard my story and you don't understand how right I am and how wrong they are. Well, then there's this phrase that kind of cuts through any leftovers. He said, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then this, and this is the clincher, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And so you could ask, well, what was the attitude of Christ Jesus like? Well, he descended into greatness. Most uh, descents in our world don't necessarily lead to greatness. In 1972, a woman by the name of Vesna Volovic, who's a Serbian flight attendant, um, had the plane, the DC-9 that she was serving in, shot right out from underneath her by a terrorist bomb. So she's over <coughs> Czechoslovakia. She fell 33,330 feet to the ground, and she survived the fall. Uh, you'll see a picture of her coming up. She holds the right world record on that kind of descent, you know, uh, without a parachute. And, you know, I'm not going to try and break it. I don't think you should either. It's quite a descent, but I'm telling you, it's nothing compared to the descent that Paul describes in this account. Jesus Christ, even though he was God, did not demand and cling to his rights as God. 
but laid aside his mighty power and took on the form of a servant and the likeness of man, who being in very nature God. Paul describes what that meant in a letter to the Colossians. Listen to what he says. Okay, this is where Jesus was, where he came from. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and supreme over all creation. So you can look out at the stars at night and you can understand Jesus, the one who came here and gave his life, he was there long before any of that. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on the earth. You look out, you see Polaris, you see the sun, you see all the other stars out there. He made them. He made things that we can see and things that we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. He holds all creation together. That's who Jesus is. That's where he descended from. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I'm sure we can't even fully comprehend, comprehend what it was like for him being the son of God in heaven. But he didn't see his equality with God and his power over the universe as something to be clung to. You've ever watched people in our world, man, they get up on a, up on a you know, get a job, get a title and stuff, and they will cling to that till they die, not Jesus. Paul's account said, but he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And the, the actual wording is the word kenosis, and it basically means that he emptied himself. Like he, he gave it all up, gave up, you know, literally poured out all of his power and capacity as God so that he could be fully human. And God himself showed up as a, a tiny clump of reproducing cells in Mary's womb. And he became a baby, you know, a baby that needed to be changed, a baby that needed to be cuddled, a baby that needed to be carried wherever he went, a baby that needed to be, you know, breastfeed. You just imagine what kind of descent that is. Somebody once compared it to, you know, us becoming an ant, okay? And that would be a descent, wouldn't it? You know, you're this thinking, caring, loving, you know, uh, human being that's going to live forever, and you become an ant, you know, the things that we squish when they get into our crackers and into our picnic lunch. Now, you could be king of the anthill, and that, you know, that would bring you some prestige, but <laughs> not much, right? But the son was born to a young woman who happened to be spending the night in the only available accommodations in Bethlehem, and he became a baby. He became a baby. Now, this would be a very inspiring story, you know, if the story went, the storyline went, yeah, he was born in a stable and stuff like this, but you know what? He actually became, you know, the ruler of the entire earth, you know, and he accumulated great riches for himself, and everybody came and served him. The leaders of the world came and bowed their knees to him, but that didn't happen. He wasn't finished descending yet. He did amazing miracles. He raised people from the dead. He healed people of blindness. He multiplied meals for 5,000 people. But he was still treated with contempt. What characterized Jesus' life was his selflessness. He said, come to me because I'm meek and lowly of heart. When he saw his disciples starting to descend into this whole thing of power, he said, don't you dare do that. He says, because the leaders of my kingdom are not going to be like that. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. And that's what you're going to be like too. In fact, on the last night of his life, he took this clump of disciples that he had, you know, 12 of them sitting at the table, including Judas, and he did the job that nobody else was willing to do. He stripped down to his underwear, took a towel and a basin of water, and he washed their feet. You'd think that'd be enough, wouldn't it? 
He's come from eternity, ageless, perfect knowledge, limitless power, you know, purity, worshipped and obeyed by angels in all the universe, you know, to a largely unknown human being who got tired, you know, worked as a construction worker until he was 30, needed to get eat, needed to eat and sleep and got sore feet and sore muscles and probably sick to his stomach sometimes. He was indistinguishable from every other human being. You think, okay, that's enough. Okay, I'm done here, you know, I've descended far enough, I'm going to stop. But he wasn't finished yet. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Death all by itself is a humbling experience, you know. When you die, you see all the authority and, and status and everything else that you have vaporizes because it doesn't mean anything anymore. Other people come along and they decide what they're going to do with your body, whether they're going to burn it and put it in an urn or whether they're going to bury it in the ground or put it in a mummy or something like that. They decide what's going to happen to you. They decide what's going to happen to your stuff. But even then, Jesus' death was unique. He died on a cross. And it wasn't like they took his life from him. He gave his life. See, crucifixion back in that culture was showtime uh, for someone. You know, everybody hated and they were glad to see him die and tortured to death, you know. And what happened when, they, when someone was crucified was that, first of all, they'd take him out and give him a public, a public beating. They'd take a scourge and literally rip the flesh off their back until they were in shock and almost dead. And then they would be nailed to a cross like a butterfly, you know, pinned to a piece of cardboard. To even breathe, Jesus had to step on the nail or push on the nail that was through both of his feet and push up on the cross so that his lungs could fill with air. He didn't have any control over his bowels or his bladder. I mean, the cross was a messy, ugly, smelly place. And that's where he died. And after his final breath, Jesus dropped limp like every other dead person, his eyes still open, blood still dripping from the cross into the dirt. And you see, after the show, all the people went home and had supper. But all of heaven mourned in reverent silence as Jesus, Son of God, finally hit the bottom of his descent. He had descended as far as he could. And it appeared, you see, like Satan, the archenemy of everything, had won. But we know it wasn't the end. Jesus Christ, Son of God, you see, only borrowed the tomb that he was in for three days from Joseph of Arimathea. And it was because he willingly descended and humbled himself to make way for every stray to come home to God the Father, like me. We never heard it, but I believe that that day in heaven, they gave him a standing ovation as God exalted him to the highest place in heaven and earth. We don't see it now, but the name of Jesus, the earthly name of the Son of God in his humility is now the highest name in all the universe. It's way, way above prime minister, way, way above president or emperor or king or ruler or sovereign or anything else. And it's because of who he is and what he did that Jesus, the only name where people can find forgiveness and grace and hope and life, the only place. See, I'm sure Buddha and Confucius and Joseph Smith and Muhammad and Krishna, you know, they may have been good people, but they didn't pre-exist as the Son of God. None of them ever set aside their rights as God and selflessly humbled themselves to come and give their lives. There's none of them that went to a cross, and they all died, and their graves are still there. You can go to them, visit their tomb. But Jesus rose from the dead because God raised him from the dead. 
There are a lot of people in this world that do not, simply do not understand this and can't believe it and won't believe it and won't accept it, you know. And people every day in our world millions of times flip off his name as, a, as a, an expression of contempt or they hit their nail, hit their, hit their thumb with a, with a hammer or something like that. But it won't always be like that. This goes on to say, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And someday, the clarity of what happened that Christmas morning 2,000 years ago is going to hit every person who lived. God himself descended into greatness by becoming a human being. And every knee will bow. You can name them all, you know. Pilate, who sentenced him to death. Hitler is going to bow. Osama bin Laden, Lady Gaga, Donald Trump, you know, Justin Trudeau, John Lennon, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, Richard Dawkins, Nero. And my knee's going to bow. And so is yours. Because God has made Jesus Lord over everything, giving him the highest name that is above every name because he was willing to give his life. The key to all this is humility. I don't know if you've done any reading uh, by Jim Com uh, Collins. He wrote a book called Good to Great. I just have the CDs that I listen to. But in this book, he went through and he did a lot of research, researched a lot of leaders and so on. You know what they found out was the number one quality that made for an excellent leader, the best leaders? Humility. And I'll tell you what's strange about that. You see, up until Jesus came along, you know, humility was actually considered to be a character fault, a character, you know, uh, flaw. If you read this book, this is another book, it's written by John Dixon, it's called Humilitas, and he describes how humility became one of the highest qualities and why we can now discern that it's the best leaders who have humility and so on. And he describes how this happened and how, this, how the quality of humility basically grew to be a point, to a point where it is today. There's nobody who likes somebody who's arrogant and proud and self-centered. Nobody likes that. Because it, it's the it's the ingredients it's the ingredients for all kinds of chaos. Now I've I've probably studied this passage more than any other passage in the Bible. It's been the passage that I come to again and again, and it reminds me of who I am. You see, and it reminds me of who Jesus is and what He did for me and what He did for people that I don't even like. And as I've studied this, and even more recently as I've gone through it again, I find myself moved by it by what he did. And I knew I couldn't adequately explain it like I hope to today. You see, in the whole New Testament that describes Jesus, you know, it's kind of, those are holy writings. This is the holy of holies. Who would ever think that God would be humble? Who would ever think that the one who created the universe would humble himself and go to a cross? Who would ever think that? And yet we're called to have the same attitude. Because you see, it's the path to greatness. It's the only path to greatness. It's the only path to any greatness that matters. That's what makes pride so wrong and so ugly. It's because God is humble. And it's the opposite of who he is. And the question that I've asked myself again and again, and my question as we close today is, where do I need to descend into greatness? 
And where do you need to descend into greatness? Where have you been, where's it been in your life where you've always needed to be right? You've needed to be the smartest person in the room and, and you needed to have your way, you've needed to have your way and, and so on. And it's brought chaos into your relational world. It's, it's hurt your relationship maybe with your parents or with your kids or with your in-laws or your spouse or your ex. And the question is, will you set this stuff aside? Will you humble yourself before you have to get humbled? That's the question. Second question is this one. Every knee is going to bow someday. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because that's who he is, you see. And my question is, if, you, if you're going to bow anyways, why not do it now? Why not do it now? Let's pray. God, it's hard for us to even find words to express what you've done for us and what it cost you to do it. What it meant as you descended, as you humbled yourself and you came and you gave your life on a cross. It's hard for us to even comprehend what that means, let alone talk about it meaningfully. I pray that you'd bring it into our hearts. I pray that we would see clearly what you've done and that all of the vain conceit and all the self-interest and all the other junk that hurts our relationships and hurts us and hurts you would be vaporized by the power of your grace and your love for us. And thank you for the power. God, today we choose to bow before you. Amen.